Welcome to EI Dialogues, a series by Educational Initiatives, an organization working towards creating a world where children everywhere are learning with understanding. In this podcast, we speak to entrepreneurs, academicians, policymakers, and education leaders, delving into the most important and urgent questions on solving for quality and equity in education. This episode is part of a special series recorded at the ASU Plus GSP Summit in April 2020 and is hosted by Pranav Kothari. In this episode, we speak to Emma Dorn. Emma leads knowledge development and dissemination for McKinsey's education practice. She also works with including school systems, technology companies, civil society organizations and more to improve access to and quality of education. Emma is a thought leader in the domain, having authored several articles and reports, including detailed analysis of PISA outcomes. She has also shaped recent thinking on how schools can respond to the COVID-19 pandemic and how systems can emerge more equitably from the crisis. What we found was really interesting that actually mindsets, student mindsets accounted for over a third of the explainable variation in student outcomes. Because if a student is in trauma, they can't learn. And if a student doesn't have the right study skills, it's much harder to learn. And so actually thinking holistically about a child's education, not just literacy and numeracy, which are incredibly important, but what are the broader scaffoldings and supports that you're providing to that student through the school climate? The current device usage seems to be actually not yielding the results that you and I want, right? And especially when we think about the learning crisis, both that pre-existed COVID and that COVID has exacerbated, we need ed tech to be a part of the solution. What we are finding is that it's not just about the hardware, but also the learning software inside it. So maybe it's more of, you know, what is the pedagogy underneath the technology that is sort of uh, uh, there? And maybe that's making the difference. In this conversation, Pranav and Emma speak about the drivers of success in education and learnings from high-performing education systems that can be scaled. They discuss the need for cultivating student-student mindsets, teacher-directed learning, and implementing edtech with high fidelity to improve educational outcomes. Emma, thank you for joining us here at the ASU GSV Summit. Uh, uh, how are you? Very good, very glad to be here, thank you. So in 2018, uh, on the basis of the PISA results, uh, you wrote about the key drivers of student performance uh, across regions and systems. I uh, would love to hear your uh, insights that emerge from it globally, uh, as well as any key drivers that you notice in the highest performing systems. Sure, so happy to talk uh, through that a little bit. Um, this was the PISA 2015 report, and then we also analyzed pieces of the PISA 2018 report. So PISA 2015 was uh, 540,000 students in 72 countries. And what makes the data so powerful is that it takes not just assessment data, uh, but the OECD asks a whole bunch of questions of students, of teachers, of principals, of parents about their mindsets, their behaviors, uh, and other characteristics. And so what we found was really interesting that actually mindsets, student mindsets accounted for over a third of the explainable variation in student outcomes. And I think we've already always known that student mindsets are really important, but the, the magnitude of this really surprised us. Um, and one mindset in particular came out as particularly important, and this was 
Motivation calibration. And motivation calibration, it's a hard name, but what it really means is the understanding what it takes to succeed. And students who could correctly identify what it took, what successful study habits looked like, what it took to succeed, actually performed about 15% uh, better than students who didn't once you controlled for socioeconomic status, school type, location. And actually students from lower economic, social economic uh, background who had this mindset outperformed students from a higher socioeconomic background who didn't. And so that was really promising to us as um, a potential route to support better student achievement. Now, of course, in order for it to be powerful, you have to have the right interventions to be able to shift mindsets. But around self-regulation, I think there are meaningful uh, interventions in place. And so that was kind of the first finding that we found. And how really does one codify this? If one were to sort of know that this can cause a 30, 15% uh, change, how can that be implemented at scale? What do governments need to do? What do school leaders need to do on this? Yeah, so I think that as we've then kind of, we zoomed back from student mindsets, what we could see in the data to then the, the research base around both student mindsets, but broader school climate, uh, social emotional learning, uh, student mental health. And this is something that's come out in more recent work in the pandemic as well. Um, and the importance of some of those, those foundation and pieces, because if a student is in trauma, they can't learn. Uh, and if a student doesn't have the right study skills, it's much harder to learn. And so actually thinking holistically about a child's education, not just literacy and numeracy, which are incredibly important, but what are the broader scaffoldings and supports that you're providing to that student through the school climate, through specific social, emotional, mindsets education, but also bringing that not just in a specific SEL curriculum, but across everything that you're doing in the school. Were there other findings that you wanted to share? Sure, there were two more. Um, the second one I won't spend as much time on because uh, I want to get to the third as well. But the second was really interesting. Um, that was that we looked at um, reported teacher instruction. So we asked students, what kinds of instruction were you receiving from your teacher? And then uh, OECD PISA um, grouped that into more teacher-directed instruction and more inquiry-based instruction. And uh, really slightly counterintuitively, what we found is that um, it was a mix of the two that were the best. Uh, but specifically, if you had, the optimal was to have teacher-directed instruction in pretty much every, every lesson and inquiry-based instructional methods in some. But the worst outcomes came when you had inquiry-based in all and teacher-directed in none. And so what this kind of said to us is if we're thinking about designing curriculums, is that A, a balance is important, but B, students need to have a basic level of knowledge in order to apply that knowledge and to develop the skills associated with it. And we're not the pedagogical experts, there are people that are, but it was really interesting seeing this coming out at the macro level uh, across data. Thank you. And the third one? Uh, yeah, so the third one was around technology, which is very uh, relevant for this conference, as yes. this is a lot about education technology. Um, and it was a little bit sobering. I mean, I have a personal belief that technology has great potential both to improve access uh, and to improve personalization of learning. But when we looked at the piece of data, what we saw that it's, it's very hard to implement that at scale. So we looked at this from a number of different angles. The first was we looked at devices. Now, we know that distributing devices is not in any way an effective implementation of edtech, but we were just curious, you know, students who use, have an access and use devices in the classroom, how are they faring? And what was interesting is it was very dependent on the type of device. So some devices were associated with um, 
highest student learning. I'll give you a guess. What was the device that was most associated with increases in student learning? The smartphone. The data projector. So not what you would even think of EdTech, right? It's a data projector. Again, tool for the teacher to engage students in an effective way. Uh, what was the device that was the least the least correlated with student outcomes? Uh, I feel under pressure now. I've been <laughs> I didn't expect Sorry this to put you assessment. under the spotlight here. <laughs> I need technology to save me. <laughs> okay, the least effective ed tech tool um, perhaps was uh, uh, like a smart board, maybe? So it's an interesting one. So what we actually found is that the two tools that were least effective where we had data across all of the different countries. One was e-readers. Well, not very many people use e-readers, so we kind of put that to one like side. Like a Kindle e-reader? Like a Kindle. Okay. Uh, and, and this was also the um, piece of 2000 uh, and uh, 15 was focused on science. So limited use case for e-readers and science. So it, we weren't super surprised by that, but the one that was really interesting was tablets. And so huge, really interesting, if you walk around the exposition halls here, some really interesting things happening with tablets, RCT trials, where they're having great impact in small scale. But um, across the countries that, that PISA was, was um, uh, tested in, actually students who used the tablet in the classroom performed about half a year behind students who didn't. And that was in both in reading and math and science. And that is because they are distracted? Uh, so people didn't ask why, right? They just asked, did you use a tablet in the classroom? And then they looked at what the student outcomes were and students who used them. Now, it's a correlation. It's not causation. There may be many other factors involved. Uh, we did control for economic status, school type, and location. But there could be some other endogenous factor that's, you know, causation. The other pieces that were really interesting around technology is that Technology in the hands of teachers seem to be correlated with higher outcomes than technology in the hands of students. And so again, technology just only in the hands of students was correlated on average with about half a year less of learning, whereas technology in the hands of teachers was correlated with greater learning. And then the final thing that I think was really interesting from, from these PISA results was um, the amount of time spent on technology and how that correlated with student learning in different contexts. So there were a few countries where uh, the optimum amount, so the amount of time correlated with the highest student outcomes, was over 60 minutes uh, a day, but in, within the subject. Uh, and so, for example, Canada, uh, Australia, a couple of other high-income countries, uh, the highest student outcomes were correlated with more than 60 minutes of use per day of any device, but of a technology device, uh, in the classroom. What was interesting is if you looked at low and middle income countries, well, I'll give you another guess because you know you love these guesses. What was the amount of time that was correlated with the highest student outcomes on any device in the classroom? What was the... Sorry. So how much time a day? Was it like 10 minutes a day, an hour a day, five, uh, five hours a day? How much time on a device was correlated with the highest student outcomes? Um, 30 minutes. Zero. Oh. <laughs> so I was like, oh. So according to this assessment, at least zero minutes a day is correlated. Now it's not causation. But I think what it speaks to is not that we should throw out ed tech, but that implementation is critical. And that if you, and then we repeated the, the analysis in 2018, very similar results. Um, and, to, and that many of these ideas that we see 
here at SUGSV have huge promise, but implementation to get them to scale right. is the really hard piece and maintaining the fidelity of implementation as you yeah. scale yeah. is is the much harder task. Yes, yes. We see that actually in our work as we have uh, deployed uh, you know, MindSpark and adaptive yeah. learning software uh, in multiple parts of India. What we have found is that in addition to the uh, school leader and the teacher uh, mm -hmm. through whom we are working with, it's also helpful to have additional sort of staff that is able to sort of make sure the usage is there. And then when there is usage, we see learning, we see impact, we see the movement uh, on the randomized control trials that we've been part of as well. But I'm very surprised, um, you know, at some of the pieces you mentioned because our experience has been the opposite in the right. sense, um, you know, and, and again, you know, we're device agnostic. So whether you use it on a smartphone, tablet, laptop, computer system, but I think what we are finding is that it's not just about the hardware, but also the learning software inside it, right? So a tablet just by itself, there have been numerous studies that showed um, a causation of negative learning gain because it's time away from instruction, it's a distraction, it's a game that students are playing. Or even like prestigious projects like the One Laptop or Child and others that yeah, I've yeah. done have not really moved the needle on yeah. learning options. So maybe it's more of, you know, what is the pedagogy underneath the technology that is sort of uh, uh, there? And maybe that's making the difference. Or yeah, not. and I couldn't yeah. agree more. I think yeah. it's, you know, as you think about what does it actually take to implement well, I think it's all about having these cohesive instructional systems where you have effective standards that and curriculum, high quality instructional materials and curriculum that are aligned to those standards. And then evidence-based student engaging software with then teacher professional development. And so just looking at devices is not the right measure. That said, what's worrying is, is that obviously many students are not accessing those coherent instructional systems with great software right. because the current device usage seems to be actually not yielding the results that you and I want, right? Yes. And yes. especially when we think about the learning crisis, both that pre-existed COVID and that COVID has exacerbated, we need ed tech to be a part of the solution. And if it's just more distribution of devices without the right software, without the right supports, without the right professional development, the right integration into the classroom, yeah then I'm worried that, you know, PISA 2022 is going to show similar results. Yeah, yeah I think EdTech has a lot of promise and in our research we find that there are five, you know, conditions in which mm -hmm. it achieves it. So the first is adaptive because mm -hmm. students are at different learning levels and the pandemic has exacerbated that, right? Yeah. So any software that is understanding and figuring out the child's current knowledge mm -hmm. state and helping them learn forward is going to do better. Second is what is the pedagogy insights, you know, either from assessment data or others, as opposed to simply digitizing a curriculum. Mm -hmm. Third, we found is the contextualization of it, like in what language is the mm -hmm. software in? Because, you know, if it's in a language that the child is familiar with versus just English in the middle of yeah. a, a, a country. Yep. Um, and then well, how is the data that the software is using to actually make iterative improvements? And I, I think if those four conditions largely are met, then I think it makes a difference, but uh, otherwise uh, it's, it's lesser, yeah. So are there, you know, specific countries or systems uh, where you think EdTech can do better, um, uh, where, you know, uh, the losses that we've had because of the pandemic, um, it can be recouped uh, faster. So are there particular systems or countries or any correlations that you have seen that allow the, the set of students there to use EdTech to, you know, 
sort of close the gap. Sure. So happy to talk about that a little bit. Maybe we need to kind of take the first step is what has what has happened, right? What has the impact of the pandemic been on yes. student learning, but also student well-being? Because yes. I think both are really important. Yes. And the latest report that we put out is really sobering. So we've been very worried, you know, since the pandemic hit that it could exacerbate pre-existing inequalities in education. And over the past two years, I've been doing a bunch of research, publishing a bunch of reports on the impact of the pandemic in the US. And it's not good. Like even in the US where um, we have reasonable digital penetration, not perfect, but reasonable digital penetration, students are on average three to four months behind. And that has exacerbated existing inequalities. Um, so we found that students in majority black schools are five months behind where they would have been absent the pandemic. And students in majority white schools are only two months behind. And so we're seeing already this K-shaped recovery where some students are doing, you know, it, it, I don't think it passed anybody by, like we all felt some effects, but some students are recovering quite quickly. And by the end of the school year, they may be back on track. I think, um, there was one study that actually showed that students who were going into the pandemic ahead in reading actually progressed faster during the pandemic because maybe they had nothing to do and they read a lot. <laughs> but students who were behind in reading fell a lot further behind. And so we're seeing this, this K-shaped recovery. Now, take a step back. The latest report that we just released is looking globally. And there the picture, the US may not be fine, but for the rest of the world, this has been a catastrophe in some countries. And in, in India, actually, especially. And so if we look at different countries and how they've been impacted, um, I think there's three archetypes. There's the high income countries, which were closed a little bit less time, still meaningful amounts of time, but that had reasonable digital access and where existing inequalities have been widened. Um, and in many places, there is now funding to catch up, though the, finding the people to staff the funding to catch up is still a challenge, even in, in high income countries. There's then the very, very low income countries who actually didn't have the infrastructure to close for very long. And, uh, and so in general, our countries in Africa, for example, closed for less time than many countries in, in middle income countries. Um, now, when they were closed, there was very limited access to remote learning. Tanzania, for example, I think 6% um, of students had access to uh, radio, 5% uh, to TV, only 1% had access to remote learning. So there was not much learning going on during the pandemic, but at least schools were not closed for very long. And the other thing to bear in mind with these countries is that even before the pandemic, there was not that much learning going on in some of these schools. There were, in especially the, the very low income countries, Democratic Republic of Congo or Malawi, um, there were sometimes class sizes of like 150 children. And teachers who just did not have the training. I mean, I don't know how any teacher has the training to cope with a class size of 150 students, but teachers who didn't even have the training and resources that we we would see uh, in classrooms that we're more familiar with. And so even though the pandemic had an impact, maybe the, the primary imperative is working out what were the structural impediments to a good education before the pandemic and how do we fix those? So now we come to our third archetype, which is gonna be close to home, which is middle income countries. And middle-income countries in Latin America and South Asia, especially, closed for the longest, some for as many as two years. And though they had some infrastructure, they did not have the infrastructure, especially in rural areas, to roll out really effective remote learning. And so 
Well, we see maybe those some of those high-income countries being three to four months behind where they would have been. Countries in Africa being maybe six months behind where they would have been. We see countries in Latin America and South Asia on average being 12 months behind. Students being 12 months behind. And that's of a 10-month school year. So that's over a school year. So imagine if you're a grade two student when the pandemic hit and you missed the second half of grade two. You missed all of grade three. You come back, you're half in grade four and you don't have any of the prerequisites you need. At that point, you're expected to know how to read, but you never learned how to read because you missed that fundamental year. And we know, you know, from years of research that students who don't learn to read by third grade struggle to then read to learn thereafter and have lower outcomes. And so when you look at the South Asia case and the Latin America case, it's clear that we need a completely new approach. Um, we are going to have to accelerate learning tremendously if we're going to prepare these young people for the future of the workforce, which is more automated, you know, a real challenge. And how do we do that? Are there like, you know, um, proven solutions that have been done? Um, because even before the pandemic, there were many countries where learning levels were below the grade level, right? So there yeah. were countries like India, for example, where half of grade five students were not able to read the grade two text. And right. the pandemic has only exacerbated it. So how are we going to come out of this, Emma? Give us some hope. You've yeah, been yeah. such a realistic <laughs> picture of where we are, but we need to know how are we going to improve from where we are. Yeah, Yeah. no, I'm sorry. I'm always the downer in every conversation. Uh, but I do have hope. I, I have hope partly because I think our young people are tremendously resilient. And I've seen then also so much resilience and innovation just as I've been walking around this, these conferences with 5,700 people, <laughs> talent and ideas. Yes. And I think more and more energy and excitement about applying that talent in low and middle income countries. I still think there's tremendous challenges in that, but I do think that there's hope. Um, so we looked a little bit at what are some of the, the evidence-based approaches to help students catch up. And I'll talk about the ones that we've seen in high-income countries first and then maybe how they could apply. So, you know, in high-income countries in the U.S. where I live, there's been a few approaches that have been shown to have really effective evidence base. So the first has been high-dosage tutoring. And this isn't your volunteering tutoring that I kind of do in my spare time. I'm not a very good volunteer tutor. I may be a good researcher, but don't have me tutor your kid. My own kids would tell you. Um, but real high dose of tutoring. So this is in-school tutoring, delivered by paraprofessionals, college students, doesn't have to be teachers, small ratios, one to two, one to three maybe, delivered three to five times a week, 30 to 50 minutes on top of regular instruction in one subject, has had tremendous outcomes like students have learned a year or two of additional mathematics over the course of a year now that would nice. that that would catch up the entire yes. uh cost of the pandemic yes. um now it's not cheap and it requires an army of tutors so the challenge actually in rolling out tutoring and scaling it as we've been even within the u.s is not the funding it's it's the people. Yeah, the like supply of high quality tutors who can actually do this. Uh, right, the supply of college graduates who right. can, especially in a very tight labor market right now. So how do you then adapt that into a lower middle income country situation? I think we don't know for sure, but we've been seeing some interesting experiments with peer tutoring. 
that is structured again into the school day with meaningful dosage. Uh, would love to see more results from that. So I think one of the big kind of themes that I'll come back to again and again is we've got to be measuring what works and what doesn't in this new environment because everything is changing. And very excited to hear that you're doing a lot of, you know, randomly controlled trials, but not just of the tech, but of processes and procedures and entire systems. And how do you measure and see what's working and what isn't? Um, so maybe there's there's experiments in peer tutoring and virtual tutoring and online tutoring that, that we can think about. I think the second thing that we've seen has been uh, really effective is in high income countries is when students are three to four months behind or even a year behind is continuing to expose them to grade level content, but providing the scaffolds to access it. Because as you, there is definitely a kind of self-fulfilling purposey as students repeat classes and get given kind of dumbed down versions. Um, and there's also a lot of bias. And so even students who are capable of accessing advanced materials, they're often not given it because the teacher makes assumptions based on the color of their skin or their income level. And so being able to uh, continue to provide access to grade level content. Now, that doesn't mean you give someone who can't read War and Peace, but it does mean that if everyone in the class is reading a book about racial justice, you allow the kid who isn't yet reading at grade level a either one of two things. One, maybe they can listen to the book and so they can still participate in class discussion. Now, they're still going to need their phonics instruction to get up to learn to read, but you, do, you, you provide them still with the intellectual stimulation that's relevant to their age level. So they also feel included and yes. they get that exposure to that, even if it's talking with friends or uh, yes. not feeling lost in the classroom. Exactly. Yeah. And so just because someone can't read doesn't mean they can't think, right? And so being able to really engage and both teach at the right level, but also access to grade level content at the right level that someone can access. And I think if we think about um, low and middle income countries, there's very similar approaches, but that are more fit to context. And so the foundational literacy and numeracy work, the work of Pratham with teaching at the right level, really understanding where students are today. And I think that's the first step in anything is you need to understand where a student is to understand where their next step is. Um, and you can, you know, maybe in, in the US, that's a complex formative assessment uh, that's computer adaptive, but maybe in a lower middle income country that can just be a simple mobile app or it can even be a pen and paper but understanding where each student is being able to teach them to the next level having stepped curriculum that enables them to continue to access yeah. um, and continue to grow yeah I agree with that because once you know we understand where students are then whatever they are getting uh, to learn from the chances that they also get it correct uh, is higher <laughs> And that builds confidence uh, that, hey, I got this right, <laughs> right? And one can do this in a way that's invisible to them that this is a year below or two years below mm -hmm. their grade level. I mean, that part can be only visible to administrators or teachers to know where the students are. Yeah. But we found that the fear of, you know, math or the confidence mm. boosts up when they're learning at the right level. Um, so, yeah. Which comes back to the student mindsets point that we yes. said right at the beginning, because if right. you demoralize a student and you right. have like a, you can't do a deficit based mindset, then that's not a great place to start from. But if you can encourage a student and be able to teach at the right level, show small successes. Um, I'm really curious to ask a question back to you. Sure. One of the other things that we found is really critical is 
just the integration into the classroom with the teacher. And we are exploring with various people how that changes in different contexts. Like to what extent and how the teacher is engaged and involved in, you know, a class of 20 versus a class of 50 versus a class of 150 right. with different levels of resources. I'm curious yes. how you've been yes. thinking through that. Yeah, I think the human teachers play a very important role in the education of the child. Mm -hmm. So um, what we find useful is to tell teachers what groups of students by names are struggling with what micro concept. And if a teacher can figure out a way to take them on the side and help them uh, with that, I think helps tremendously. So if I can tell them that, you know, Sarah, Raj, uh, Pranav and Anne are the four students in your class of 2050 or 150 that are struggling with this micro concept, you know, can you help them? So if you get a teacher a playlist of the groups and the micro concepts, I think that's helpful. I think as class sizes get bigger, one has to think of what are the comparative advantages of the human teacher. So any form of group reading, uh, science experiments, um, you know, teaching values, attitude, many of those things I think are squarely in the domain of the human teacher. And perhaps a lot of the learning at the right level or uh, a lot of the practice, a lot of the homework uh, can be delegated to technology. Um, and all that technology does is it provides the equivalent of a temperature check of every child even before they've walked into the yeah. classroom uh, for the teacher to bake that into their lesson plan. And the ability to really personalize learning is, yes. as we said yes. at the beginning. absolutely. So how are we going to, uh, you know, come uh, and implement a lot of these? Because I think at the planning level, it this sounds, you know, something that I resonate strongly with. But, um, you know, what would need to change from a government procurement system, uh, a teacher acceptability part, uh, a parent uh, consent uh, part? Um, how, what are, like, if, if you were talking to the education minister of India uh, or, you know, a large uh, secretary uh, of education in one Indian state uh, or any of the other countries that you have brought up, what would your advice uh, be? Yeah, it's a hard question. I mean, implementation at scale is 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 difficult, right? Yeah. And where we see, I think, as we look around the the world and we look at school system reform, we see the what is fairly agreed upon. We kind of know what the what is. We need high quality teachers and teaching. We need high quality instructional materials linked to standards. We need. Um, you know, if we're using technology, we need it to be linked to student outcomes with a clear purpose in mind, with personalization and access to the highest quality. We need an effective performance management system that provides capability building as well as accountability. That's the what. I think people agree on the what. And have you seen this work in any country? Have you seen any best practices of... Uh countries that have you know gotten their act, act together. <laughs> together so it's interesting we've we actually just did an analysis that we haven't yet published but we're looking at so back in 2007 2010 we took a look at the PISA results again and we looked at the countries that either were at the top or actually more interestingly had most improved because if you are a country that currently has fairly low outcomes it's actually not very smart to copy Finland or Singapore because if you look at Finland or Singapore you say oh distribute all of power into the hands of these highly capable professional teachers who can make their own decisions. You're like, oh, well, actually, in a more, what we've called a kind of poor to fair versus a good to great system, you actually maybe need to provide more centralized control, more scaffolds to teachers, more scripted lesson plans, more systems to support teachers. 
uh, partly because teachers haven't had as much training, partly because many teachers are doing two jobs. And so they don't have the time at the end of the day to also be preparing. And so providing those tools and scaffolding to teachers. And so we looked at what such systems that had most improved, but that was 2010, so much has changed. So we're actually just launching a new research effort right now in the, the, next, the next year to look back at systems again and see which systems have improved in the last decade and what is working and what isn't. And when we did the initial analysis, the piece that was rather depressing is that there are less systems. There are fewer systems that have actually made these big gains of like a whole year of learning improvement in the past decade. And actually many of the superstars from yesteryear have actually fallen in PISA. And so I, I haven't fully worked out this conundrum yet. Like when these international assessments came out first, we were all very excited because we thought, well, this is amazing. We will see what works. We will apply it. Everyone's achievement will go up. And so far that promise hasn't been fully delivered. And I do think it has a lot to do with this implementation piece. And, um, and so that's something we're gonna be interviewing system leaders around the world, trying to understand what works and what doesn't in implementation? How do you, because it's one thing to get a single classroom, but to get a thousand classrooms operating at scale is, yeah. is hard. Send me a copy of it. I'll be the first one to read that. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we look forward to it. We can definitely keep in touch. <laughs> is there anything you would like to share that I haven't asked? Uh... I think just the final point would be, as we think about supporting students to recover from the pandemic, both academically and from a well-being perspective, which we've talked less about, but is a s challenge of similar magnitude. I think at every level, we need to understand the context and the differences. And so at the student level, we need to understand that each student is unique. And so the importance of really understanding where every student is. But then at the country level, we need to understand every country is unique and understanding, as you said, the unique cultural contexts. Um, and so not being able to have this broad brush approach, but actually trying to have the nuance of understanding where every student is, what are the unique cultural contexts, to be able to actually then provide the tailored supports to support students to succeed. And as you've walked around uh, at ASU GSV over the last two days, what has inspired you? What has motivated you? What have you found odd? What have you found surprising? Uh, any, any insights from this conference? So I think the thing that's inspired me most has been talking to a lot of the different entrepreneurs who are both thinking about really evidence-based, so many more people, I would say, this year than in previous years, talking about randomly controlled trials and the evidence of improvement, and not the like latest, sexiest, cool idea, but really some fundamentals and how to do the fundamentals well. And then also really thinking about scaling. And so um, talking with lead schools, which is now scaled to nearly 2 million students in India, talking with Imagine Worldwide that has had really interesting RCT results in Malawi and is looking to work out how that can scale through donors. And so thinking about not just public or private, but the combination of public funding, private funding, social funding, how does that all come together? Uh, kind of threaded yes. in a way to scale some of these great ideas. Yeah. yeah, I think what I have found like over the last 10 years uh, more recently is there is greater rigor 
in terms of measuring what works, what doesn't, right? So on one end of the spectrum, you have the JPALs and the three IEs and then yep. the ID insights of the world. But I think what I'm seeing greater uh, willingness uh, uh, to subject one's solution, product, service to um, evaluation mm-hmm. um, as it relates to student learning outcomes. I think yeah. people are, I mean, obviously the logistics and the operations comes to, uh, I mean, it comes to mind the first because you are executing on it. But I think the fact that, you know, people are willing to say, hey, let me actually see if this is helping a child read uh, or, you know, do math and make tweaks to the product uh, or the implementation thereof. Uh, uh, which is good. I mean, we are also participants in a development impact bond where, you know, ultimately only the outcomes matter, right? It yeah. doesn't matter what how hard you worked or what yeah. strategies you put or how many permissions you got or how many trainings you did, but ultimately did it move the outcome and outcome. So I think one of my um, piece of hope here is there's just greater willingness to sort of do this hard work uh, to come up with something that's scalable and can improve systems, uh, help us not just cover the gap, but, you know, accelerate a- a- ahead. Um, so, so, yeah, it's exciting. Uh, but thank you. Thank you for joining, Emma. It was wonderful talking to you. Uh, thank you for doing all the systematic work, uh, parsing through the <laughs> volumes of data to be able to produce coherent uh, research reports and sharing your insights today uh, at this conference. Uh, I look forward to staying in touch. (laughs) You're welcome. I do too. Have a great rest of your day. Thank you. If you enjoyed this conversation, subscribe to EI Dialogues so you don't miss on upcoming episodes. On our YouTube channel, you can view thematic videos on the role of technology in education, collaborating with governments, scaling interventions and much more. Also visit our earlier conversations with Andrea Schleiter on the need to develop a science of learning to help educators diagnose and address students' challenges.